Welcome to the Four Narcotics Anonymous podcast. Here we share audio recordings of NA members sharing their experience, strength, and hope. If you are a drug addict or think you have a drug problem, you are welcome to attend an NA meeting. Go to www.nahelp.org meetings to find a meeting near you. On this website, you will also find more information about the Narcotics Anonymous program. Thanks for listening to this recording. Uh, I'm an addict. My name's Jim. Thank you for having me here. Uh, and uh, I'm really thrilled to be uh, amongst a group of uh, addicts who uh, are in such a range of clean time, which is pretty cool. Uh, I was recognizing, you know, how many people followed that stair step down from uh, 44 uh, uh, to where we start, started losing track of people up less than a year or less than 29 days. And uh, it, it's just, it's amazing to me. Uh, uh, by the way, uh, we're going to try and do something like this up in Michigan, so I'll get flyers down here to people that are interested if you want to come up. Uh, Flint, uh, they tell us it's safe to drink the water now, so. <laughs> and if you if you want to escape the poison down here, you can come on up there. Uh, I got to get my digs in. You know, people have been poking me about the water ever since I got here. So uh, first thing I want to tell you is something that I got from Jim. Uh, Jim M. was a, uh, most of you know, was a founding member here and uh, a, and really a founding member of Modern Narcotics Anonymous. Uh, and <laughs> the first time I ever spoke in front of a, a Narcotics Anonymous crowd was in uh, uh, 83 in uh, Atlanta. And uh, geez, I thought I was going to die. I didn't know what to do. And uh, he'd heard, he'd, I, we'd talked, you know, for over a year on the phone and whatnot. He'd visited a couple of times. And, and so he came up to me and he says, what's the matter? I said, man, I don't know, I'm scared. He says, well, look, here's what you do. Before you go up there, the last few minutes, go in the bathroom, kneel down over that bowl. First thing you do is puke. <laughs> then clean yourself up, because you've got to get that puking out of the way, otherwise you'll make a fool of yourself up there. Clean yourself up and then ask your higher power to use your mouth as an instrument of his will to carry a message through you. And then step up in front of everybody, open your mouth, and you'll be surprised at what comes out. And, uh, and I did that, and I was. I was really surprised. And some of it was even true. <laughs> I had like, uh, I had three years clean, <laughs> clean at the time, and I was just shaking in my boots. So today, I've got 43 years clean. You saw me stand up. Thank you. And if uh, higher power willing, uh, March 1st, I'll have 44. So damn it, if you guys had just delayed for a week or two, uh, it doesn't matter that much anymore. Like, uh, who was it Josh, Josh said? Uh, we get stuff from, from each of us. Uh, it's an exchange of spirit. It doesn't... Clean time matters. If you don't think it matters, wait till you get some. But but it's still it's about spirit. You know, raw spirit can come through just about any of us at any time. I, I was sitting next to a girl in my home group the other night, and uh, 
she was talking about this relationship problem she's having at home. She's got two babies. Dad's not doing a good job, and he's got his deadbeat son living there in the house. And, uh, so she's kind of going on about the relationship, these romantic relationships, familial relationships, extended family relationships. She says, man, I knew I was broke, and I knew all the people I knew were broke, but I didn't know that two brokes don't fix it. You know, you bring two broken people together, and that don't fix nothing. She thought, you know, originally that it would. And I told her after the meeting, I said, you know, there's one circumstance under which two broke does fix it, and that's if they come together with a fucking program. If they got a 12-step program, then two broke people can make it. It happened in my town. Two of us come together to make the, the fellowship start. We both were desperate enough that, and fed up enough with what we were experiencing that um, we were willing to do the work, you know, to, to be there uh, every day that the meeting was happening. And if anybody else showed up, great. If not, then we talked to each other or we read. Now, back then, we didn't have a, NA didn't have a book. We had the little white book, and it was customary to read from the big book. And I would plod through that sometimes, but I didn't really like it. The language was kind of arcane. Uh, I guess that's what you call it. And uh, although I appreciated what the guys that started that fellowship had been through, it didn't, not all of it really kind of got to me. I was still looking for something that was going to do it for me. And... Uh, So I started, I started the NA meeting. I put a sign up, in the, and I started it at uh, an AA clubhouse. First mistake. <laughs> and I put a sign up in the, in, at the bottom of the stairs where everybody went downstairs to the clubhouse coffee shop, you know. Bottom of the stairs, there's a sign. It's got needles. I made sure that it had needles. It's got needles dripping blood. <laughs> You know, joints twisted up, smoking on the end, and uh, I don't know what else. Oh, a cocktail glass or some damn thing. You know, whatever thought I could throw in there. Pills and, and <laughs> Narcotics Anonymous meeting starting Sunday, 10 a.m. Sunday, 10 a.m. was the only time of the week that there was no, no AA meeting in town. So I picked a time that I could maybe go raid the AA people for a couple of folks that would come into a 10 a.m. meeting. And I had been going to AA, and uh, like many of us who started NA meetings at home, and, and I wasn't staying clean. I, was, I wasn't using my drug of choice, but I was on my way back. <laughs> and uh, I was smoking joints in the parking lot and going into their meetings and just sometimes just giggling, you know. <laughs> Sitting along the back. The, they had a, always there was a back wall with a few chairs back there, you know. <laughs> Jesus. And I knew that there was other addicts that were doing the same thing, and a few addicts that were staying clean in that fellowship. And uh, so I started the a, uh, NA meeting, and uh, the, oddly enough, the sign didn't attract a whole lot of people. Uh, but uh, one gal showed up, and she says, I saw your sign, and I think you should probably take it down. <laughs> uh, because, uh, you know, it kind of turns people off. I, th man, I thought I was a great artist. Uh, so uh, so between the once a week NA meeting, I would go to AA meetings, wait till after the meeting closed, 
and walk up to the people that I recognized as addicts and say, hey, we're having an NA meeting Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., why don't you come on over? And a few of them actually did. Most of them wouldn't. They were happy doing what they were doing. Uh, so uh, I was a little, you know, I wanted the thing to take right off, right? And uh, that's not how it happened. So uh, as part of the process of opening, oh, I want to back up a little bit because my dad uh, had 10 years on me in recovery. He started in AA in 1971, just nine years. And uh, these guys, he had, he had opened up a drop-in center where they were having some AA meetings across from where he worked at a big factory, uh, him and uh, another guy. And uh, about three years before I started the meeting, some guys showed up from California to do a computer job for General Motors. And they started an NA meeting in that facility, in that little drop-in center. And they had a little white book and the three or four pamphlets that we had back then. And uh, I dropped into that meeting because I was curious, you know, oh, narcotics, this ought to be good, you know. And I did just what I'd been doing at the AA meetings. I smoked a joint in the parking lot before I walked in, thinking that I was going to giggle at the back wall. And I was the only one there besides them. And they tore my ass up. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they let me know what was going to happen to me, how things were going to go, and that it wasn't going to work what I was doing. And... I was so, you know, I just shrank. Uh, and I, I didn't hear a message. Well, I know they were trying to give me one, but I didn't hear it. And uh, so I left and didn't go back. When they left town after a couple of months, the meeting folded. Really, no one had been ever attracted to go in there. So, um, hmm, a little dry moment. So, uh, Dad, he's... He says, later on he told me, I grabbed that literature thinking, someday I'm going to run across somebody that's going to want this. And he took it home and he stuck it in the sock drawer in his dresser. So for the next two and a half years, the entire Narcotics Anonymous program in Flint, Michigan resided in my dad's sock drawer. <laughs> uh, so when I was ready to actually make an effort to, to recover and do something, I didn't know what to do. Uh, I recognized I wasn't making it in AA, smoking the joints and all. And uh, I went to Dad and I said, uh, what, the, what do you think? He says, you got three choices. Two of them were him paying my way to get out of town. <laughs> one, one was, he said, you can sell everything you own and I'll buy you a flight out to California you can join Synanon, which was at the time that was still in existence. Some of you probably remember hearing about it or maybe even attended a Synanon game at some time or another, because they had them throughout the country. Synanon was an organization started by a guy in AA back in the 50s, and it was actually very successful at getting addicts clean for some years. And then it started getting really fucking weird. <laughs> so <clears throat> uh, by the time he offered that option to me, Synanon was already getting pretty fucking weird. I'd, re I'd read magazine articles about how things were going out there. It wasn't good. Uh, that didn't sound good. He says, two, I'll buy you a plane ticket to England, and you can get on their morphine maintenance program. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, right away. <laughs> Part of that sounded good. <laughs> but, uh, you know, moving that far away, and 
I, you know, I just, that really wasn't the direction I wanted to go. I really did want to try and find a way to stay clean. I just didn't know how to do it. And he says, the third option is maybe you should start a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. Now, where he got that idea, maybe he'd been reaching for some socks that morning and saw the literature there. I don't know. but And he offered me the Narcotics Anonymous literature. And I'm looking at this. You know, I'm used to going to these AA meetings. They got all kinds of stuff, racks full of literature and shit. And he hands me this mimeographed copies of a little white book, three or four of those, and uh, a few pamphlets. I said, what's this? He says, Narcotics Anonymous. Take it, start a meeting. And we talked about how to start a meeting and all that. And he knew how to do that stuff. I didn't. And uh, so then jump back up to when I had started. So uh, I, the address for the World Service Office and the telephone number was on the back of the little white book. So I called. Jimmy picked up, and we start talking. I tell him I want to start an NA meeting. Do you have starter kits? Yes, we'll send you a starter kit. Da -da -da. A few minutes of talking, hot dog, we're on, on the way, you know. And I don't know, two months later, we might have got the starter kit. That, and if anybody's, you know, several of you remember back in, in those days, it wasn't easy to get literature from the office. It wasn't his fault. Uh, it, they just didn't have the wherewithal. And they would take, uh, they would let the orders pile up, you know, the money and the checks pile up until they had, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars worth. And they could go to the printer and say, okay, here's enough to get, to make it worth your while to print our literature for us. <laughs> and then they'd print the literature. Whatever they printed with that money, that's what you got in your order, whether that's what you ordered or not, that's what you got. Uh, but, and it was good because we all just had a few pieces. We had another look. Uh, how it works, recovery and relapse, and a couple of pieces that have since disappeared. I don't even want to mention. Uh, but the most important thing was those little white books. And I don't know if it was one of the conversations I had with Jimmy or somebody else that I spoke to, but somebody told me I was struggling with an urge to use. And somebody told me, if you Feel yourself with a desire to use. Grab that little white book and start reading it. And tell yourself, promise yourself that you'll go ahead and use after you get done reading through that little white book. And I said, what the fuck is that going to do? So I'm on a job where I'm on a forklift truck in this factory. And I'm seeing all the people that I used with in there. And I know they're going over there to do something. He's going over there to do something. They're going upstairs to the bathroom. I know what's going on with everybody on the floor. <laughs> I'm, oh, fuck, man, Christ, I really got it. It's getting on me. And uh, I, so I pull out the little white book. They said, stick it in your back pocket and keep it with you all the time. So I pull out the little white book, and I say, okay, I'll read this. So I read it for, I only got about three or four pages into the little white book. I don't think I even read the steps, and I felt better. And, and I'm, so I'm going to tell you today, if, you, if you're relatively new or even older, and you want a, a guarantee that you won't use, put that white book in your back pocket. And if you think you, you need to go get something, pull that son of a bitch out and read through. It only takes a few minutes to read through the little white book. You know, even if you're a slow reader. All the better if you're a slow reader. <laughs> so it may save your life. It did mine. Uh, <clears throat> I didn't know anything about, I, I presumed, I'm in Flint, Michigan. It's 60 miles north of Detroit. 
I thought, Narcotics Anonymous has got to be in Detroit. So, <clears throat> uh, leave all the details out, but I, I, I had an option to travel around to some AA meetings in Michigan with a, another group of people doing a skit uh, about their stuff. And um, everywhere I went, uh, I asked, do you know anybody that does Narcotics Anonymous after the meeting? And, uh, and they'd say, I asked old Joe over there. He, uh, he used to go to the, one of those dope meetings, you know? And <laughs> so I'd go over and talk to old Joe, and he'd say, eh, nobody would come, you know? Or another guy, next time I talked to a different person in, the different, in a different city, well, you know, we had some meetings, but when the church found out who we really were, that we were inviting addicts into the building, <laughs> they cut the damn thing off. Uh, so uh, another guy says uh, something else. It was always a problem. You know, uh, people kept stealing the money. So all the stuff that we know happens, you know. And uh, so I bounce around Michigan in a big circle to quite a few towns, probably seven or eight towns. Didn't find a soul that knew about a current Narcotics Anonymous meeting. I get to Bay City, Michigan. It's like 40, 40 miles north of Flint. And it's the last place in the state that I expected to find an Archives Anonymous meeting. And so I get done with the AA meeting we were at. I asked, hey, who knows about Narcotics Anonymous, anybody? And he says, they pointed to the guy that was chairing the meeting that night. He says, go talk to George. So I walked up there, I talked to George. I says, I'm Jim, I'm an addict from Flint. I started an NA meeting down there. Do you guys have NA here? Why, yeah, we got two meetings a week. No shit. Wow, two meetings a week, you know, that was a big deal to me. I'm doing one meeting, I'm barely getting by on one meeting a week. And of course I was still going to AA. And um, he says, yeah. He says, you know what? I got something from the office the other day. It was this blue service manual and it described something I've never heard of before. An area service committee with representatives from the groups he says, is that anything like the AA representatives that go to their service committees? And I said, well, I got the same thing. I've been reading it, and I was wondering about it myself. I said, uh, well, what do you think we ought to do about this? He said, well, let's go ahead and start one. So we get on the phone, you know, and it took us maybe, I don't know, two or three weeks to pick a date and a time, and we met. And he brought a couple guys with him, came down to Flint. I got a couple people in Flint. We had five or six people there. And we put together what we thought of was the appropriate service committee. We called it the Unity Council, because that's what AA called their service committee. We, didn't, we had the book. It said Area Service Committee. We didn't know what we were doing. So uh, it was like a couple of months later, I was talking with somebody on the phone. and It must have been Jimmy, because he's the only one that ever answered the phone out there. And he said, oh, you're going to start a service committee, an area service committee. Oh, no, we're calling it the Unity Council. Ah, what the hell are you doing? He says, follow the book, he says. So, so, we, so we renamed it. We renamed it the Michigan Area Service Committee because there's three meetings that we know of in the whole damn state. And uh, uh, so from those efforts, uh, we started, we printed a meeting list with three meetings on the damn thing. And I don't know, we printed a thousand of those damn <laughs> meeting lists, and most of the meeting list was 
uh, how it works, you know, and a couple of other copies from our pamphlets. And we distributed them around the state as best we could. Wherever we went, we took some of those with us. Well, pretty soon, people start calling, because we had our telephone numbers on. People start calling and say, uh, you guys got Narcotics Anonymous? Yeah. We want to start a meeting here. Okay. Yeah, cool. Okay, so I'd give them the, the phone number of the office, first off, so they could get a, a starter kit, because we couldn't do it. We didn't have shit. We didn't have nothing. It was all we could do to scrape together the money to do the printing. And uh, they said, uh, and within a few months, the area service committee would have people from Bay City, Flint, Pontiac, Michigan, uh, other people from, the, if, if you knew the area, northern Oakland County is north of uh, Detroit, and that's the, that's the relatively affluent suburbs of Detroit. <laughs> and that's where it got started down there first. And then a guy shows up from Inkster, which is downriver, a little more down and dirty like Flint. And, uh, and uh, so pretty soon we've got like 10 people at this area service committee meeting. God damn, what are we going to do now? Well, we had a sanity bash in the summertime. A big party out in the park with a lake and cookout, you know, barbecue. Had a wonderful time. Lost our ass. All the money went away. So we're starting over again on the money. And uh, so it, things weren't going too well. This is like 81 or thereabouts, and I get, I get a copy of the gray book in the mail. And I, I started a meeting, and, we, and it was the first meeting in Michigan that read a book from Narcotics Anonymous. And uh, we, read the, we tried to read all the way through the book. I'm not sure that we did because I left on an extended vacation and came back and uh, the meeting had folded and the book was up on the refrigerator, you know. <laughs> but uh, I remember when I read the book that I thought, my infinite wisdom, oh man, Jesus Christ, God this, God that, God this, God spirituality. I was an atheist and I thought there's too much God in this damn thing. So I sent in one of those sheets that says, you know, what's your, what do you think? Or have you got any additions? And my comment was, there's too much God in the damn thing. Take, take a little bit of it out. Well, thank you for not doing that, whoever's here that might have been involved in writing the, the basic text. Uh, <clears throat> we, uh, oh, thanks. Thanks, Keith. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, I was getting uh, uh, letters in the mail sometimes from the literature committee about join us here and join us there. And it always seemed to be too far away, right? Right. Um, if it was dope, I'd have gone, but nope. <laughs> so, uh, so I, uh, I always made an excuse for myself. But I was willing to go on these vacations with women, which was, you know, that was my focus, part of my focus. I was, I was clean, and that's something for me, but I really wasn't recovering. I didn't really understand any more about the steps than I had gotten out of AA, which was read them. Read the steps, try to live them, whatever that meant. It wasn't anything about getting in-depth in with it, you know, not studying it. Uh, and so uh, it mostly what I got from the AA People was listen to the old guys talk about the steps, and then you'll know. 
Well, I didn't know. It didn't do it for me. And uh, we tried as best we could to copy some of that, you know, in our local fellowship, in a fellowship. By that time, uh, late 81, maybe we had two or three meetings in town. We had a hospital meeting. We were very proud of that. And I was going into uh, another hospital that did detox. One hospital in town was doing detox. Um, not many people showed up. I don't know if I was just not very effective or they just weren't ready or what, you know, combination of both. <clears throat> One, t I don't know if it was the, I guess it was the, the gray book. When I got the gray book in the mail, there was a, a cover letter, a cover sheet in there that had the telephone numbers of every world-level trusted servant in Narcotics Anonymous. The names, their position, and their telephone numbers. And uh, I thought, oh, shit, man. And I looked down there, and there was two or three numbers that were on my side of the Mississippi River. Everything else was far out to the West Coast for the most part. And I thought, oh, shit, maybe I'll call one of these guys. So I called, and I think the first person I spoke to was Bo. And uh, he says, you know, you got to get down to down south here where we're doing things. Uh, come on down to Atlanta for a convention. Well, that sounded pretty good, but driving down to Atlanta just didn't appeal to me. And he, I stalled it off for two or three months. Bo turned me on to Jim's number. He said, look, the, the nearest person to where you're at that's trying to do real Narcotics Anonymous in their community is this Jim Miller and the people that he's working with there around Youngstown. Give him a call and talk to him. So Jim talked to me, and he tried to get me to come to some of this stuff, right? Uh, it, was after, it was after the literature committee uh, meeting that had been held at the farm, but, or, or in the area. It wasn't at the farm, I guess. Uh, so, because <clears throat> I might have come to that one. That's only five hours. But it was 14-hour drive to Atlanta. And I put it off and put it off, and finally I let him convince me. And uh, I, I, I got a, I, I, I worked for, uh, it doesn't matter, yeah. I get too much detail in these things. Uh, so I got a, a big station wagon, and I, I found three women that wanted to go down with me. <laughs> three women. And I thought, <laughs> I got it made, man, no matter what happens. It's almost worth the 17 hours to just be down there with these three women. And uh, so... Uh, <laughs> So on the way down there, we, you know, we talk a little bit about what, we, what we're expecting. We don't know what the hell to expect. So I, I packed up. I'd gone to AA conferences, what they call their stuff conferences. And uh, everybody brought their board games and their cards to play cards with all night. You know, sit up, drinking coffee, play cards all night. And that was the convention. And uh, so I packed board games in the back. Cards and shit. I never, none of that shit ever got unpacked. We got down to, this is a, a February uh, 82 in Atlanta. It was called the uh, Southeast Regional Convention. They hadn't formed a Georgia region yet. And uh, it was at the Holiday Inn Hotel on 10th Street in Atlanta, not far from the Varsity Restaurant. I remember going down there for, for some hot dogs. And there was 300 addicts there. And probably 50 or 60 of them were literature committee members. Uh, maybe even more than that. And there seemed to be an electricity in the air there. There was something about it. And uh, I, I walked into the lobby. <clears throat> and 
and, and Greg P was there. If I remember right, it was him. It's a great big guy. I walk in, he says, hi, are you here for the Narcotics Anonymous Convention? I said, yes. Boom! Picked me up. He picked me up off the floor and held on to me for a minute. Well, welcome. I'm going, I had never been hugged by a man before. We didn't do that in Flint. We didn't know anything about that shit. You know, never heard about it. So, <laughs> I kind of pushed myself off, went and registered, you know, and the, the girls got, got there. They certainly got their hugs. And uh, we check in, go back down to the lobby, and I see a whole bunch of people walking around with these white books. And, uh, and, they're, and a lot of times they're, they're sitting in the lobbies or the hallways reading these books. I'm going, well, what the hell is that? So I asked a few people, what is that? And they said, well... It's the approval form. I don't, know, I don't know what that is. They said, well, after the gray book, you know, they factored in a bunch of stuff, and this is what they come up with. And it looked like, man, that's all they got out of that gray book? Jesus. <laughs> but, you know, of course, it was a different typeface and all that. That's why it looked different. Uh, uh, finally, I chased down somebody that uh, said, well, go talk to Joseph, and he's got, him, he's got some in his drawer in his room. So... <laughs> Uh, Carol and I go up to Joseph's room. We get up there, and before he, he was so sly, before he pulls the drawer out to get the books out, right, he says, well, what's y'all's uh, first step up there in Flint, Michigan? I said, I'm, I'm terrible at the accent. I'm sorry, buddy. You get the idea. He's from Memphis. And uh, I said, oh, I'm Stand right up, I say. Well, we we're powerless over drugs and alcohol, and our lives have become unmanageable. That's what it is. He says, he, he's, he, did, he closed the drawer back up, didn't get the books out. <laughs> he turned around, and he proceeded to give us a 10-minute lecture on the disease concept of addiction, which I had never heard before. What the fuck? What is this shit? And I, for somehow, I missed that by reading the gray book. Now I read the gray book. And I see it's all over in there. How could I miss it? I was just blind. Uh, so <clears throat> he says, you know, it's really all about addiction. It's not about the drugs that you used. It doesn't matter what drugs you used. Don't even bother naming the drugs that you used because we don't care about that. What we care is, how did you feel? Did you ever feel ashamed of yourself for what you were doing? Did, did you know, deep down inside, what were you hiding from people? That's what he talked to us about. And it's the first time anybody had ever suggested that I consider any of that stuff. That was the shit I was hiding. I wasn't, nobody was going to know about that. Uh, how did I feel about myself? How disgusted was I about the things that I was doing to get dope? You know, and the way that I treated people, especially women. Uh, so... And by the way, <clears throat> I ain't a player. So <laughs> I only treated women badly when I got a chance, which wasn't very fucking often. <laughs> My relationships tended to be on the 29-day variety. You know, a couple of bumps and off we go. Uh, honest to God, man, I never had a relationship with a woman 
that was longer than 29 days until I got to Narcotics Anonymous. And it was several years after that before I've had one. Uh, thank God, because, uh, you know, they would have been disastrous. Uh, so uh, finally, Joseph opens the drawer and says, he must have deemed that we were ready to, to receive the book, you know. So I felt like Moses getting the Ten Commandments from God. I mean, it was, it was, very, it was a very, very powerful moment for me and for Carol. I don't know what, you know, Joseph probably went through that shit all the fucking time. And uh, so he says, well, I only got seven books left. I'll take them. I says, I, I'll take them. I didn't even look at it. I hadn't had a chance to read it yet. I said, so I, I got him. I paid him what he said he needed to have for him. And, uh, and he, says, now, he says, now, don't go up there and start giving these away. If you give this book to somebody, it'll be worth to them what you charged them for it, which is nothing. If you give it to them for free, they are not going to appreciate it. That was the idea back then. So... I wasn't sure how to handle that because I only got seven books. I got a whole damn state. What am I supposed to do? You know? <laughs> so uh, we, we stayed down in Atlanta for the rest of the convention, had a wonderful time. Uh, first, after leaving Joseph's uh, room, Carol and I went back to the room. We sat down and we read the book cover to cover, and then we read it again before we went back down to the rest of the convention. And I swear, you guys all know this, They've been following me around. How the hell did they know all this shit about me? How no? And, you know, it dawned on me, other people are doing the same fucking thing that I've been doing, and they participated in writing this book. Tell me, why didn't you go to some of this stuff, you know? <laughs> so uh, we wrapped up our business down there. There's a little more to say about that, but we wrapped up our business down there, and uh, oh, <laughs> there's another part I really like. <laughs> the opening meeting was a ballroom, you know, and there's several hundred people there, a couple hundred people there. And this girl gets up, and uh, they're having a um, beach ball meeting. So they throw the beach ball out, hit somebody, and whoever catches it comes up and talks. So this girl gets up and goes up to talk, and the thing I remember about her is she had leather pants on that were cut on both sides, and they were laced, you know, and these stiletto heels and oh my fucking god, she had my attention right from the time she stood up. <clears throat> and she says, I wasn't ready for what she said though. She said, I don't know much, brothers and sisters, but I know this. Work the steps or die, motherfuckers. Yeah. That's what she said. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, Carol and I looked at each other and we kind of said, fuck man, we ain't in Kansas no more. This is it. <laughs> This is fucking it. Something's happening here. You know, this is different. And uh, we, we begin to get the idea that this is what we've been looking for. And all the way back home, that's all we could talk about, was the book and the experience of going to the convention and what this means, what this means in our lives, because it was going to change. We were going to become a whole lot more dedicated to uh, keeping meetings going, uh, run, running meetings in an appropriate way, helping people understand about the language and how important it was, and helping people understand the difference between focusing on a drug and focusing on the disease of addiction. And uh, we knew that it was really going to be a big, a big problem for us, 
But uh, we knew that there were people up there that were going to be real, uh, receptive to this message. So I get back home, and after a few days, I get a hold of George. And I say, George, you got to have one of these books. So I, I sold him a copy because Joseph said, don't give it away. So uh, I sold George a copy. He went home and read it. Whoa, he called me back up. He says, what the hell have you got here? Where'd you get this? And I told him about the experience of the convention and all that. And especially about the work the steps or die, motherfuckers. And he says, he says what are we going to do? I said, we're going to start some fucking meetings. That's what we're going to do. One of the things they told me down there, you know, uh, Memphis is a little bit bigger than Flint. You know, I'll grant that. But it didn't seem like it was that much bigger. And so I asked Joseph at one point, how is it? They, he showed me a meeting list. They had a meeting every day and two or three meetings, other meetings during the week. So there was maybe 10 or 12 meetings in Memphis at the time. And I said, well, how is it that you guys got 10 or 12 meetings? You're not that much bigger than us. He says, well, when things get hard in Narcotics Anonymous, do you find yourself going back to AA to hide until the smoke clears? And I said, well, I guess I did, you know, because it was certainly that I did. <laughs> Or I disappeared on some fucking vacation, and uh, I had a good job. You know, I could take off almost any time I wanted to for a couple of weeks. So uh, he says, well, the, the answer is you've got to be a Narcotics Anonymous member 24-7. That's what you are. You've got to be that. And today we understand that shit a whole lot more, a whole lot better. We, it, I don't know, maybe it's not necessary for a person to be a NA member 24-7 today, but we do still tell people to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And back then, we didn't have 90 meetings in 90 days in Flint. I would have had to drive to Chicago or down here to Youngstown. And I'm not even sure I could have got 90 meetings in between Flint and Youngstown, you know, at that time. Uh, so he, uh, George and I, also talked about what kind of changes that meant for, for us. And we were waiting. Uh, they, so the people in Atlanta had asked me if I would uh, work on becoming the representative, or someone would be the representative from Michigan to be seated at the World Service Conference in 82 to help pass the book, because they weren't real sure that the book was going to pass. It was nip and tuck there for a while. and. Uh, and so I did. Uh, Carol was the alternate. I was the, uh, they called it a delegate when I, the, when you first showed up, they called you a delegate. But after that, you were a regional, uh, RSR, regional service representative. And uh, so I went there, and I was fortunate enough to be in the room when they called the vote for the book. And I stood up for Michigan. I gathered votes from the groups in Michigan asking if, do you want this book to be published for Narcotics Anonymous? They said yes. So that's what I told them out there. And so did enough other people do the same damn thing. And the resistance to printing that book, which I never have been able to understand, I still don't understand it. I've been in this fellowship for 43 fucking years. I don't know why anybody would not want us to print that book. What the hell was in their mind? They weren't printing a book. They weren't writing nothing. We come up with a book, and then some of them didn't want it printed. But that's the way it was. So yes, there were no votes that day. There were quite a few no votes that day. And I didn't appreciate it very much. 
but we kind of bowled them over. As I recall, it was like 60 or 70 percent in favor. Um, <clears throat> very exciting. Uh, all the other stuff that goes along with being a representative from a state was involved in that as well. You know, you go out to World Service Conference, there's policy, ooh, boy, policy, Jesus. And there's H&I. <laughs> there was this great old guy, Bob Berg, who used to shake the cans, man. We had these, we had these big coffee cans with a wrapper around it. We'd make up N.A. on the side of the wrapper, H&I, contribute. And after we passed the basket, we'd pass the can. So in every meeting, you'd have two chances to contribute. And the H&I uh, contrib contribution went to purchasing literature to go into the jails and institutions. And Bob Berg used to go out. He'd, whenever he was a speaker or whenever you'd see him anywhere, he'd have a can with a few pennies in it. <laughs> he'd shake that son of a bitch and make it rattle, and he'd say, shake them cans, children. Shake them cans. And, uh, what, you know, we had some very colorful characters that I ran into back then. It was really cool. Uh, and... Uh, so uh, we came back. We now we understood. We have to. Okay, we got to start more meetings. We need at least a meeting a week. Uh, we got to reach out to more communities and see if we can get a meeting established in other cities in, in Michigan. Uh, we've got to uh, stay in touch with the rest of the fellowship, what was called Greater NA. Uh, Jim gave me cards that said Anonymi, you know, Worldwide Home Group. And it was just beautiful. I got some of those at home. I'm not letting go of those motherfuckers, man. And uh, uh, it was a wonderful thing. And it was, if, you, if you're going through this effort of starting more meetings, opening more H&I meetings, trying to get into a prison that you never, nobody's ever been into before in Michigan, uh, then sometimes you get downcast. And what do you do? Well. You got some telephone numbers from people in Indiana, Youngstown, Chicago, people down in Atlanta, Memphis. I didn't know anybody over on the East Coast, but uh, so I started calling out to people and talking to them. And mostly it was about how I felt, not so much about how to work the steps or uh, any of that. I, I really didn't even, I wasn't even considering sponsorship yet. Uh, and, uh, but it was mostly about how hard this seems to be. You know, and always the, the other person on the other line, it was like a, a voice of hope and encouragement would come through those telephone calls. And I'm so grateful, you know, because that's what it took. Uh, but it also took sponsorship. So <clears throat> I had, uh, I worked with Joseph in sponsorship through step three and into step four. And uh, it was a bad year for him. He was having a real hard time with, I, I believe uh, WSO was on uh, the literature committee, and Joseph was the treasurer, and they were on the literature committee. One thing they were on him about was uh, the finances. How did you get the money to do all of this shit, you know? Uh, bouncing around the country with these workshops and getting people to show up and do all this writing and shit. You know? Where'd you get the money for these typewriters and copy machines and da 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 Where'd this come from? Where'd you get the money to print these gray books and these white approval forms, you know? And, you know, we, I, I don't know for certain, but I can imagine that, you know, maybe accounting for every damn dime wasn't the primary concern <laughs> at the moment. And so he, he was really, he was getting accused of some shit, 
And, uh, and also, the times that I would go to Memphis and try to hook up with him to, you know, be connected with my sponsor, uh, there was always so many other people that were doing the same thing. He was trying to sponsor a lot of guys. And uh, I just didn't feel like I could get it. I couldn't get it. So I stopped. I told him I was going to find somebody else. And what did I do? I, I get a hold of Greg Pierce. And I said, will you sponsor me? He said, sure, I'll sponsor you over the phone, you know. Can we see each other at conventions and stuff? Because I wasn't going to go driving back down there. He said, yeah, sure. He was, down, he was down in Tennessee, I think, by that time. He said, yeah, sure. So I'd talk to him on the phone, and uh, I'd do my steps. And I, first I told him, I'm not writing. What do you mean you're not writing? Well, I, I can't even read my own fucking penmanship. And so if I wrote, I wouldn't be able to read it to you. Oops, it's an excuse, but that's what I told him. So <laughs> he says, he's got me, right? I, he says, you got a tape recorder? Everybody had a goddamn cassette recorder back then. You got a tape recorder? Yeah, I got a tape recorder. Just, just tape it. Just speak into the tape and send me the tape when you get done with a step. Oh, shit. Okay. So I send him a few tapes, and then eventually I start writing, you know. And Greg, uh, bless his heart, he took me through all, all the steps using the basic text. Basically, he said, you know, he would say, read the chapter. Read it again, read it again, read it again, you know, read this, the piece on step one, two, three, four, read them again and again and again, and then write down or speak, uh, you know, what your feelings are about that. What does it tell you? What's it, what are you learning from this? And, uh, and it really did help. It helped me to open my eyes and look within to try to see and to reveal to myself what the hell was wrong with me. What was wrong with me? That I would live that life and put myself in those positions where I was so damned ashamed of my behavior and so out of fucking control that I couldn't pay the rent. I couldn't, you know, you guys know all the story about all that shit. Why would I do that shit to myself? What's the matter? Why did I not like myself so much that I would do that? And that's the things that I worked on, and that's what I tried to discover in that process through the 12 steps the first time. And it helped. It really helped a lot. In my infinite wisdom, uh, I got married before I finished the 12 steps. I think I was on step two. <laughs> Pretty little girl. She was real sweet. And uh, looked like it was a match made in heaven. We had a kid after about a year. I love my daughter, you know, I'm glad she's here, but uh, for me and her mother, it didn't work out. Uh, and uh, sadly, uh, her, her mother's actually uh, psychotic now. No, I mean, I don't mean that, it, it, uh, it may sound funny, but it really isn't as tragic, you know. Uh, she went back to using, and, uh, and she got involved in uh, this uh, something else to draw her, that draw her attention away from her recovery. And, and suddenly not using, staying clean, and working the steps, and being in, involved in a fellowship wasn't so important to her as this other thing that had to do with childhood sexual abuse. And uh, the more she got into that, studying that, 
the less connected to me and the rest of the people that we knew she became. And uh, I, I was helpless. I couldn't, there was nothing I could do. I, you know, I couldn't identify. And, uh, uh, and she, she got stranger and stranger. Anyway, uh, eventually, uh, the woman that I had promised uh, to love forever what turned out to be somebody else that I didn't know and I couldn't stay with. I couldn't, I didn't know how. And uh, <clears throat> all the years since then, I've always blamed her. You know, she did this. I didn't have anything to do with it. Even through using, working the steps a couple more times. And lately, I've been going through the steps again and it's on my heart that, you know, maybe I could have done something, I don't know. I'm going to study that, you know, I'm going to work on it in the steps and see if I can come up with anything that I might need to do to make amends to her. Now, having said that, I asked my son, who's in his 40s, uh, I'm considering reaching out to your mother and trying to make amends. What do you think of that? And he stepped back and he said, don't do it. She's crazy and you'll just make things worse. So, except when to do so would injure them or others come to mind, you know. And so I'll talk with my sponsor, my current sponsor about it, and maybe it's just going to have to be a letter and a willingness. And, and maybe someday she'll be in a position where I can do that with her. But apparently that's not today. Uh, anyway, going back. We, <laughs> by uh we had, uh, we had these uh, approval forms, and uh, we'd gone to the World Service Conference, and we passed the book. It's going to be the textbook for Narcotics Anonymous, and it's going to be printed by the office in a month, another month, another month goes by. We're thinking, this happened in May of 82, we're thinking by September, October, we should have a book. September, October, come by, no book. So I'm calling, hey, Jim, you know anything about this? Yeah, he's got a story to tell me about why there's no book. Greg, same deal. Joseph, same deal. And there's undercurrents of there's some shit going on out in California, <laughs> and this book ain't going to, you know, it may not get printed. We don't know what the hell's happening out there. The, the office had control of the manuscript. Rightly so. They needed to be doing the printing of the book and in Hardbone and, and uh and it didn't work out. Probably many of you already know the story about how the printer ripped us off the first time and all that. So I don't know how much validity there is to that. It could have happened that way. But in November, all we knew was no book. I take, so uh, my brother is a copy machine repairman. He says, uh, I said, hey, I want to make a few copies of this book. He says, you, uh, I'll get you hooked up with somebody that's got one of these real fancy copiers, and you can come in after hours, and you guys buy the paper and, and run them things through and go ahead. So the first run, we did 500 books. And what we did on the cover, say, say, this, was, say this was an approval form. Down here it said, uh, for approval at World Service Conference. Up here it said, Narcotics Anonymous. So we taped over this, oh, under this. And uh, we covered this up and, and wrote approved on the bottom. And, and we taped something on there that said recovery can't wait. 
recovery can't wait. We made 500 copies and started handing them out to people. <laughs> and we sold a few just to, because we knew we were going to need some seed money for some events. And by uh, February of 83, there still was no book. And we hadn't heard, we, in Michigan, we hadn't heard that there was going to be a book. We didn't know. Uh, and we had a, the, the first big event for Narcotics Anonymous in Michigan was the first Michigan mini-conference was held in Flint in February. And 125 addicts showed up from all over the state, and we had help from addicts that came up from Dayton, Ohio, Youngstown, uh, one guy from Chicago, a couple people from Indianapolis, and the rest of them were from Michigan. And, uh, and we, when they got there, we had another thousand copies of this fucking book <laughs> that we had printed up. And we were, we were trying to sell them to fund our service structure at like $4 a piece or six, I don't know, something. I can't remember the amount. And um, mostly, we gave them away. And uh, even, no matter what Joseph said, if I printed the damn thing, I was going to give them away if I wanted to. <laughs> but uh, and there, I know people in, in Michigan today that still have them. You know? They got them down in their, most probably in their sock drawer. You know? <laughs> it was a really exciting time. So we get down to, uh, uh, we went back down to Atlanta, and that's when I was a speaker, not a Saturday night speaker, but probably a Friday afternoon speaker or something, I don't remember, but there was this many people or more in the room, and I was scared to death. Uh, and um, that's when Jim told me about going into the bathroom and puking. So uh, I got through all that. We had a wonderful time at that convention again, and we learned something that the books were supposed to be available uh, in, at about the time that the World Service Conference was being held that year. So I was going back out to California as a RSR this time with maybe 15 or 20 groups behind me. Strong. <laughs> and uh, uh, I remember I, did, I made a fool of myself. Um, a gal named Sally, by that time, was the chairman, the chairperson of the World Board of Trustees. And I questioned her about, you know, because I'd heard that the trustees had something to do with not printing the book. And then the book came out, and it had this language was missing. There were words in that we had approved. We approved them. How can you take them out? You know, we didn't know. And so... I'm, I'm trying to read her the riot act on the traditions, which I don't even understand myself. How can you, how dare you this and that, you know, da-da-da. And she was being very, you know, a little serene thing. And, and, uh, and I finally just petered out and sat down, you know. Other people were doing a better job of questioning what the hell's going on here. You know, why did the book come out without this language in the fourth tradition and this language in the ninth tradition that says, that our service structure does not have the ability to rule, dictate, or decide. You, you can't rule from California. Sorry. Yep. It's not going to happen. And uh, so, <laughs> we, so we vote to restore that language in the second edition. Uh, but as, as it turned out, uh, all, the, all the hardback books had been printed, and they were uh, a few were being sent out to people that had orders. But quite a few of the 2,500 books that were printed that year uh, were available at the office. I went over to the office. I, got, I had paid for a red book, 
So I got a red book. I got in line, met Jimmy, got a hug. He wrote in there, to thine own self be true. And I walked away thinking, how the fuck did he know? How did he know I need to be true to myself, that I lie to myself all the fucking time? How did he know? <laughs> so I'm still baffled, right? And, uh, and I walk over where the blue books, the first, uh, first editions that uh, uh, most of us are familiar with, and I bought 63 copies. That's all the money I had in my bank account. I called, called back home to check with the bank how much money have I got because we didn't have ATMs back then. They said, this much. So I, I bought 63 copies, put them in a box, take them back to where I was staying. When I went on, got on that plane to go home, I checked all my bags into luggage, but I walked in the plane with that box under my arm, and I sat on that son of a bitch all the way back to Michigan because I was afraid that they would lose it, you know? And uh, it meant a lot to me that we get the material back, to, back home, you know, where people needed it. And we used to say, addicts are dying because they don't have this message. And they were. And, and we knew that we, as individuals and even groups, were not enough to carry that message out where it needed to be. So the literature was supposed to help us do that, and it did. Uh, as most of you know, the first edition comes out in 83, second edition comes out in 84. I don't know, they did, it seemed like they didn't print too many more in 84 than they did in 83, but it came out. Third edition came out in, in the next year, uh, and then there was other changes. I don't want to get into all of that because I'm not sure I understand what all happened, but it was a fucking mess. <laughs> Going from the third edition revised to the fourth edition was ridiculous. That book had nothing to do with what we, what we approved, you know? I, I just, I didn't understand, again, how the hell are they doing this? Uh, and then the fifth edition comes out, and although Perhaps most of the people in this room have recovered on the fifth edition of Narcotics Anonymous book, possibly. Uh, certainly most of the people in Michigan that are in the fellowship have recovered on that copy of the book. It's still not what we printed. It's, it's still not what we approved. And if you want to know, you know, this is what we approved pretty much, or get a hold of uh, the, the other one that was floating around here, the th third edition revised with the restored language in the fourth and ninth traditions. Uh, that's, that's the real stuff, you know. That's where it came from. Everything else in Narcotics Anonymous that's worthwhile, I believe, came out of that. Just like we could say, everything else in Narcotics Anonymous that's worthwhile came out of the efforts of that first committee in 53 that got together and said, man, let's do something for the addict. You know, they were recovering in AA, but several of them were addicts, Jimmy included. A couple of them were just AA members, never had done any dope. But they cared enough about us to help start those meetings in California in 53. Now, admittedly, by the end of the 50s, that shit died right out, was gone. Somebody, you know, a couple of people go to Jimmy and say, look, we can't, we can't let it go. And he, he and a few people got together and started it up again in 1960. And, uh, the same kind of thing. It's the same spirit, you know, 20 years later that's working on a book. All, you know, when I first got into Narcotics Anonymous, I thought somebody in California is writing a book. Maybe it's Jimmy. Maybe it's somebody else. I thought somebody was writing a book. I didn't know there was no book. 
I just thought I didn't know how to get a hold of it. And uh, it was a secret. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was waiting for a spark like Bo and Joseph and Jim and others. Any, there may be people in this room that were attending some of those literature conferences. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. This has meant so much to me. <clears throat> I got to grow from somebody who didn't know why he was doing this to himself into somebody who was confident enough in this message to be able to share it with another desperate dying addict, right? We're the people who care about desperate dying addicts and we can help them. Nobody else does. Well, they say they do, but it's about money. You know, <laughs> and it ain't about money for us. We don't give a shit about money. Most of us, especially if we're in recovery and we've been in recovery for a little while, hell, we got all the money we need. Well, maybe not all we need. Certainly not all we want, but we got enough, right? Uh, uh, as as a, my dream, they, they said, uh, uh, lost dreams awaken. My dream was always to have uh, a travel trailer and to be able to roam around the country and just go see shit, you know, national parks, cities I hadn't been to, and stuff like that. And I've been able to do some of that in the last few years. Uh, and and not the least of which has happened to me in my life, uh, the second time around with marriage, I met the love of my life. A woman that, th thank God for the women in NA. You guys don't know, maybe you do. You have such a positive effect on the, on the men that you encounter. I can't even begin to explain it, what happened in my life. I, I thought I was a pretty stand-up guy by the time I got married. Hell, I had 15 years clean. I got married to my second wife. And uh, I had no idea that she could be hurt by the words that I chose to use, even if I wasn't yelling. Someone was, we were talking about this earlier today. I don't raise my voice, but something about the tone gets twisted around in there. And somebody at the table said, I, the tone gets evil. And, and I'm, I'm totally capable of that, but didn't know that it was happening until my wife clued me in. You know, and it took her a couple of years to get that pounded in. Uh, but bless her heart, she did. And I became a better, better man because of it. So I lost my wife in 19, uh, or 2019 to a sudden heart attack. Uh, and I'll close with this. I didn't know w w what to do. The first day, uh, I left the hospital. I went back home. My sponsor was with me. He, he, he was at the hospital before I was because I was out of town when it happened. So uh, we both go back over to my house, and he'd worked third shift. He was, he'd been up all night. And he laid down on the couch. I laid down on my bed and went to sleep. And uh, I got up, and you know, by that time, some relatives are beginning to show up, and my sponsor said, well, I'm going to bow out now and go home. You know, you're, you're safe. You know, you got people around you. I didn't go to a meeting that day. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't tie my damn shoes. I mean, I couldn't do it. I couldn't breathe, really. I mean that. Uh, I walked around the house, you know. You know, 
it was just, uh, it was terrible. And, uh, but the next day, I went to a meeting and I, I cried. I told them what happened. I told them how I felt. I told them how much my heart was hurting and I grieved and I let it out. And I went to another meeting the same day and did the same thing. And I did that every day for about 30 days. And uh, I, don't, I don't know what might have happened if I hadn't done that, but I know it wouldn't have been good. Uh, I, I just, uh, <clears throat> I'm so very grateful for this fellowship, being there when I needed you. You know, you gave me back way more than I ever gave. And I thought I gave a lot to help get things started, but it was nothing compared to what I got in that 30 days. So thank you, and I'm done.